You're listening to Campfire Conversations, brought to you by Three Rivers Land Trust. Connected to the land, committed to conservation. Hey everybody, Will here. We are back at the podcast studio in downtown Salisbury at Backcountry and Beyond. We've got a really exciting episode today. We've got some podcast sponsors on, some instructors from Montgomery Community College. Real quick before I introduce them, I want to remind you guys of a few things we got coming up. Uh, email us, email me, will at trlt.org if you're interested in volunteering for our cleanup of the Stancil property down in Montgomery County. Um, we got our through hike coming up. Registration closes soon. Y'all make sure to hit the website, get registered for that if you want. I think at last count, we have about 70 folks signed up. So we're going to have a great crowd, hoping for great weather that weekend and just really looking forward to that. And lastly, on the raffle, we have our first cash drawing for $1,500 coming up at the end of this month on Friday, April 28th. Deadline to get your ticket to be in for that drawing is going to be Wednesday, April 26th at 11.59 p.m. So you got to buy your ticket before Wednesday at 11.59 if you want to get in the April 28th, 10 a.m. drawing for $1,500. All right, now that we got out of that, now we, bleh, now that we got that out of the way, I'm going to introduce Mark Dye and Alex Williams. Y'all say hello. Hey, how are you doing, Will? Hey. Doing great. Glad to be here. So Mark and Alex are with the gunsmithing program at Montgomery Community College. I'm going to turn it over to them, let them kind of talk about what they do. We're going to talk about some classes they teach, some programs they have available and uh, they are both actually SAP members. So after that, we're going to start talking about some SAP experiences and some hunts they've been on and kind of how everything's going so far this year. So guys, thanks so much for coming. Um, Mark, I guess first question for you, you have been with Montgomery Community College for how long? Almost 12 years now. That's fantastic. So yeah, I, I, um, I went, came there as a student back in the mid-90s. Okay. Um, and then I went out and committed some gunsmithing for about 13 or 14 years and then came back to teach in 2011. So, yeah, and I've been in charge of the program for about seven years now. Nice. And so you guys, these are separate from your regular long-term programs. These are short-term classes. So for our listeners, kind of... So, yeah, we have both. We have a two-year associate degree program that okay. someone can come and take, uh, get an associate degree in gunsmithing. So a little bit of machining, a little bit of repair, um, some custom gun building, all the facets of the you know usual things that you would expect a gunsmith to do. Um, so we have people that are able to commit that kind of time that can come and take those classes. But in addition to that, and, and sort of what we wanted to talk about a lot today would be our short-term classes. So we do a whole host of these short-term classes throughout the year that are usually anywhere from three days to 10 days in length. Um, and we bring in guest instructors for most of those. Some of our okay. in-house guys teach a few of those classes as well. Um, but these are on various topics within firearms, everything from shooting instruction to very serious custom gun building and everything in between. We have classes for beginners. We have classes for professional gunsmiths. Um, and we have you know, a lot of times both seated in the same class. So this is a great option for somebody that can't really take two years away from the regular life and just right. to come in and learn something. Um, and we get, there's some of the best things we do. We get some really fantastic instructors in for those classes. And I'm, I'm really proud of what we do with that. Yeah. I was looking through the course listing. There's a lot of stuff in there that looked interesting. Yeah. I have, golly, I mean, I've been hunting since I was 13 years old. We talked about this on last week's podcast, but I, you know, outside of how to break down and clean my own firearms, I know very little about how they are constructed or how they work and, um, you know, looking through the listing, there was some stuff that I thought I wanted to get in on myself. Tell me what, what would you say? What's your most popular, you know, what, what do you see the most traffic towards? Well, it's interesting. Uh, of course, Alex has been running the NRA classes for the last several years now, but 
what we normally see is if we put the word basic in front of something, it tends yeah. to, it tends to do well. Okay. Um, and, and I think that's because there's a pretty good appetite for people like yourself that, that would be interested in learning just something basic that they can take away in a week's time. Um, you know, maybe come take a week of vacation. Yeah. We, we get a lot of guys that, that, uh, the wife drops them off at the school for a week <laughs> and drives onto the beach. There you go. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's, uh, a lot of guys look at that as a vacation. They can come take a class and learn something interesting and, you know, find something in the area for the rest of the family to, to do that's outdoors. Yeah, I always joke with my friends and I. I was actually with some friends recently uh, from college, kind of on a weekend up in the mountains, and we all agreed that college was wasted on our 18 to 22-year-old selves and that, like, if I could go back and sit in a class, like, do you know how much fun I would have taking electives now? Like I would, oh, there'd be, yeah, like yeah. the amount of things I feel like I would absorb at 35 and 36, like I want to know these things. And at that point I was just so focused on going out with my friends and chasing girls and going to football games that it was yep. completely lost on me. Yeah, yeah. They always say youth is wasted on the young. It absolutely is. All right. So Alex, tell me a little bit about Mark was, you guys touched on this when we were kind of doing our little prep talk, uh, the knife making classes. What's. Yeah. What's your experience in that realm? That's that was actually uh, my groomsman gift when I got married. I found a guy outside of Clemson, South Carolina, because I had to complete some community service hours at the rodeo arena, which was basically just shoveling manure. Um, <laughs> but he had a booth set up there at the little like vendor market, and he was making knives out of old tractor discs. He would yeah. go pull old tractor discs and make knives out of them. He was putting bone handles on them. I was like, man, that's really cool. And Three years after I got done college and got married, I actually called him up and had him make, I think it was like seven or eight of them for me. And I've always kicked myself for not getting one for myself because I see my friends with them. My dad has one and I'm like, man, I should have gotten one for me. Um, but how did you get into that? What's that, you know, your foray into knife making? I got into it because I was in charge of the knife, uh, sorry, the NRA short-term classes. Okay. And uh, knife making became available. And since it's such a uh, similar skill set, um, I got put in charge of that, and in, in that decision, we decided with the, the key knife-maker instructors that I would learn to be a knife-maker as well. Okay. Because um, you can't really be in charge of something effectively unless you are. <laughs> you know. That. Right. Um, so I, I luckily enough was tutored by um, some very exceptional instructors that you know helped me learn how to make knives, tomahawks, big bowie knives, little pocket knives, folding knives, um, leather sheaths, and we do all that at the school. And it so I saw that you guys have a class for a D-guard Bowie. Mm -hmm. um, is that like, so you, when you start that class, you actually, you in that class with the knife that you made and the materials and all that are included in yeah. the cost? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That is really cool. And, and you can't beat, you know, beating on molten heavy hot steel with a hammer. It's, it's fun. It's, you just I feel like that's something time. I could get into. <laughs> Yeah, I always make the same joke. If you can't get excited about heating a piece of metal red hot and beating it with a hammer, you got to turn in your man card right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's one of those things that seems like so. I have, um, I guess in my 30s, really gotten into like the hobbies. I, my hobbies haven't changed so much, but the methodology that I take and how I approach them has changed. And I've become very much interested in like the start to finish and creation of something. I've gotten really into vegetable guarding. I love yeah. to you know, you guys have my bird dog at your feet right now. So my goal for the spring is to take feathers from a bird that I trained him to bring to my hand and turn that into a fly that I can take hopefully down on the URI river somewhere around our low water bridge property and catch a smallmouth on a hand tied, you know, with the feather that my dog brought and just kind of making that whole full circle process. So I feel like the knife making thing would really interest me because you start with those raw materials yeah, and just, absolutely. 
And in all the knife making classes, even the intro to grinding, where you think, you know, we're learning basic grinding techniques, uh-huh. you're always leaving with a, a knife, a completed knife, no matter what. Okay. We want to make sure that, you know, everybody has that capability to learn and have fun and develop those skills, but you have something rewarding at the end. So no matter what class it is, you're always leaving with a knife or a tomahawk or a bowie knife or, or whatever skill set we're working on. Um, and we're, we're always changing them around. Um, we've got a kind of unconventional one we're going to try this year. It's called, um, we switched it over the name to um, Covert okay. um, Knife Making. Basically, we're not using steel in that class. We're using G10 and micarta composite materials. And we're making um, different, you know, implements out of that. So I've got a Williams knife that I bought recently. Um, I think they're out of Alabama or something. But it's got a, I believe the handle is G10. But Mm -hmm. you're actually making the blade out of a composite material? So it would be more of like a a striking implement. Okay. Most of it's going to be like wrist locks. Uh Or, um, you know, I I did a pen um, that was made out of G10 with a metal tip. I use it as a scribe on metal. Okay. Um, wow. And so that that's always fun to have around. Um, but we really try to go in and, and you know develop people. You know, not just you know learn how to make knives and have fun, which is a great time. Yeah. You know, I, I want to set up the classes so that you can come in and follow them. And by the time you get done with you know a certain amount of classes, you're at a pretty exceptional level of a knife maker. Right. Um, so the, the like the where I started, where I usually encourage a lot of people to start, is we have a Christmas knife class. Um, it's designed as a, you know, a present to you or you're making a present for somebody. So you're coming in, you're making a custom knife, you're making custom handles, custom sheath. Okay. Um, and by the end of it, you know, you're, you're not getting terribly complex with the techniques, but by the end you're completely done with all of that. Um, and it's just a wild good time. And then from there we go into our fixed blade classes. So we've got fixed blade 101, intermediate 102, advanced 103. And by the time you get through those three, you could be a pretty exceptional knife maker in the industry. Okay. You guys offer anything just for my own personal curiosity, because I'm sitting here thinking, I used to cook, or I, I still love to cook. I used to own a food truck, so I used to do it professionally. And do you guys have anything that makes a chef's knife, or do you ever have yeah. anybody make those in your classes? Yeah. Yeah, we have a... And I'm going to have to come do that. We're doing a chef knife in September. Um I've been personally interested in that myself. I'm massively into cooking. I love yeah. the death. Half the guys that work at the school are colossal foodies. We can't help it. <laughs> You'll have to check out. So we were standing right by. Did you see the Smithy ironware display that he's got? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those always, are super cool. I like those. I always joke with Jeff that, like, one of these days, I'm going to walk out of here with, like, a $200 cast iron pan that oh, I yeah. don't need. <laughs> I mean, I've got some of my great grandmas that dates back to, like, the early 1900s probably the 20s as best we can guess and always love like cooking pancakes for my girls on something that's fed members of my family for over 100 years but man every time i look at those things i'm like those are slick those look nice they got a good look to them yeah we were talking about that out there they've got the nice polished finish Uh Uh, you know most of the new cast iron skillets you buy are just rough cast right so Uh, how do you accomplish that polished finish on metal what does that process look like so for those that's probably almost a lathe turning process they probably just turn that out and on the older skillets you know if you look at skillets that were made a long time ago a lot of those will have that same sort of finish they just don't most of the companies that are making them now don't bother to yeah, like process. they call it nonstick, and really it's just not uniform, right. and that's what makes it nonstick. Yeah. Um, 
But like, so if I was going to try to get that finish on, say, a knife or the receiver of a gun, what would the process be on like a small scale so doing it by hand? What we typically will use, we'll, we'll try to cheat it first a little bit and we'll use some powered implements. So we okay. have um, belt grinders. So essentially it's a, it's a motorized um, item with wheels on it that has a spinning belt of sandpaper. Um, so we'll use this uh, belt grinders. We'll use a buffing wheels, which are big cotton wheels that we could put an abrasive compound on. Um, but by the end, no matter what we do, you always finish by hand. Okay. Because um, a 600 grit buffing um, buffering wheel and a 600 grit belt and a 600 grit by hand all look different. So you always want to, you know, get that final little detail and everything going the right way. The the sanding lines going correct. Um, all by hand and all unitizes. It, it's very beautiful at that. That sounds like a process I could really get involved in, get down on the weeds on. That sounds like fun. <laughs> a lot of elbow grease. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so kind of segueing a little bit, Mark, I wanted to talk about a class that I saw that you teach that looked really interesting, hunting rifle shooting techniques. Yeah, that's a um, new one that we're going to try this year. We haven't done that before. We do okay. some, some shooting instruction classes. Um, so I'm, I'm a competitive shooter from way back. I'm mainly handgun stuff, but I, I've shot, handguns competitively for 25 years now wow, okay. um, and then you know of course I shoot rifles and I'm a hunter as well and it's sort of a, a thing that I've seen a lot that that a lot of hunters especially new hunters don't have a lot of shooting instruction they don't shoot a lot yeah um, so I would I just like to have the opportunity to to sort of improve the shooting skills for the for the hunting crowd and I think it would be particularly good for people that are new shooters yep. or new hunters that would like to come out and, and give that a try. So it's, it's going to be an interesting class. So rather than just setting up on a bench with, with some nice sandbags and shooting at stuff, um, I really want to put people in hunting positions. Right. So I'm going to put a tree stand up on the range. Um, okay. I'm going to have a, a box blind down there, probably a tent type blind. Um, and put and, and then do some improvised stuff, shooting off of things, under things, over things. Yeah. Situations that you might actually find yourself in in the woods that are just different than being on a regular square range most of the time. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I think we'll do some stuff with with twenty two rim fires to get people sort of in the groove, and then a little bit of center fire work as well. But it it really is interesting. A, a lot of hunters don't really even understand the process of sighting in their rifle very well. No, um, I can tell you, I don't. I've yeah. always taken it to someone sure. uh, that knows to help me do it because I otherwise wouldn't trust the yeah. work I could do on that. Yeah, and I think it's it's really important to have a little bit of understanding of that if it's a yeah. piece of equipment that you're going to use every day, or not, or even on the days that you go hunting, however many days that is. Yeah, um, it's it's nice to have a little bit of an understanding of that. It's it's um, as a guy who works on guns, it's hard for me to see how people who don't work on guns can use them very much because I'm always having to change something or do something different. Well, for sure. I think there's also that angle, something I'm always talking about. Like I use this as an argument for buying like the nicer gear, especially like in a spousal sense at home. And I'm like, look, I get so few days to do this. I'd be damned if I'm going to get out there and have it not work (laughs) when I need it to work. Right. Like when you, you work so hard to create the opportunity for yourself, like, do I really want to do all this, burn the gas, burn the time away from work and family to get, in this situation and then have the equipment be what stands between me and a successful hunt, you know, you don't want that to be your limiting factor. No, for sure. And I, you know, I've always said I am a much better, I could probably stand to take this course because I, uh, I have never felt confident at all in my ability to shoot a rifle at a stationary target. There's something about that. Like I, it starts moving on me and, I'm a much better wing shooter, and I think it's because I don't have time to think about it. And I'm a much better wing shooter in the field than I am on, like, a clay's range mm-hmm. because I have time to think about the angle and where do I need to have my lead, whereas out in the field, you know, I hunt. You, know, you guys have my 
English Cocker Cheese, who's on our social media. He's in the room for most of the podcast. He's going in between Mark and Alex's feet right now. If you guys hear something, you know, bumping the table, that's probably what that was. But he flushes a bird, and it's time to react. You know, he doesn't yeah. stop and point. He finds them and puts them in the air, and I find myself so much better in those situations where it's just quick, mm-hmm. and I just have to go rather than you know having to plan a shot and consider obstructions and your angle and you know all the factors that go into making uh, you know good humane rifle shot. Yeah, and, and, it's, and that confidence you can gain once you have that, right? You'll feel much more confident to take further shots, shots that you went in the past that you're like, I don't know if I can absolutely make this. You know, once you get that confidence mm-hmm. built and and the the base information, you you just you really can go at it. Or sometimes the opposite, you'll have a false confidence because you haven't done something for real, right? Yeah. You know, if you haven't tried something, you assume yeah. you can do it, and um, sometimes that's not always correct. And we see a lot of. YouTube videos and social media where people are taking very long shots these days. There's a lot right. of equipment that allows people to do that. And, um, and I think a lot of people just assume that they can do that as well. And, and unless you, you really put yourself in that circumstance, uh, you, you probably shouldn't try. Right. Do you guys do any long range shooting yourselves? Mm-hmm. A, a bit. Yeah. I'm not certainly not a specialist in long range right. shooting, but a bit. Yeah, I like I'm always do hobby long range. I have a cousin down in the southeastern part of the state who, I don't believe it's his, but someone he knows has a thousand yard range set up. And I'm always fascinated mm-hmm. to go and watch him do that. You hear that, you know, like the, you got your shot and then you have like a three, four second delay till you hear the right. impact down yeah. range. It's always so wild to me to kind of, you can, in some cases, almost watch the arc mm-hmm. of the bullet. You can see that kind of vapor trail in slow motion. Oh, absolutely. And for us, we, we we're associated with the range south of the school in Ellerbee called okay. Coleman's Creek. Um, and we take the students down there periodically, and the students are also members. Um, and they can take their custom rifles that they build with us down there and shoot out to a mile. Oh wow! Um, so once you once you get out there, it's it's hard to go back to not shooting extreme long. Range. I can imagine. So, and I want to something you just mentioned. So, if you sign up for the class, you get a membership. That yeah. range as a part of the class. No, it's it, they just oh, offer okay. a discount rate first. Oh, fantastic! But okay, we we have a lot of good industry partners. Yeah, you know, firearms companies, optics companies that that support our school in a lot of good ways, and they give give our students a lot of nice discounts on product. Um, and that would be a good example of one. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so kind of talking about the hunt rifle class. Uh, Mark is for the listeners, Mark is the newest member of our conservation committee. So we're really excited to have you joining that. Thank you, um, for offering to volunteer your time. And you guys are both actually SAP members. Mm-hmm. So I know you were out last week, Mark, or you said you've got this week on low water bridge. I do. Yeah. I'm on one of the blocks on low water bridge this week. I've been going out, um, in the mornings to listen for turkeys yeah. a couple of, a couple weeks before this, but so I've heard a few here and there and, uh, yeah, actually tried to share some some data on where i'd heard some turkeys. uh-huh for we somebody, always appreciate that somebody yeah i had a different block than me i thought well maybe somebody will do me a favor like that one day yeah for sure if we hear i know travis is out there today i think doing some uh limb cutting for our state archery tournament we have down there in july so if i hear of anything i'll Mm-hmm. let you know what i hear are you when are you planning are you going out tomorrow and saturday probably i'll probably i'll be out saturday morning for sure i may make Fantastic. it tomorrow afternoon but um, yeah, afternoon hunting for turkeys is a little different for me. I'm, I'm used to the morning time thing. So yeah. And I, we, we did an episode, uh, turkey hunting preview and it was fascinating because it's something I've done very little of. I, um, love to hunt migratory birds. That's always a fall thing. And then in the springtime, I'm usually thinking about fishing yeah. and I've never really put a whole lot of time or thought to turkey hunting. I've been one time and we had the guy that took me with him. We had a Jake and a hen 
uh, from about 100 yards come all the way to us and pass us at about five yards. And that was like a heart-stopping experience. I was kind of blown away at at just exactly what that did to the adrenaline in my body and kind of the rush I got from it. And I've, I've wanted to go back and do it ever since. I just know very little about it and not very confident in my ability to go out there and make it happen. But I guess that's... You got to get out and do it. That's the try. game. Yeah, you got to go out and do it. I spent a lot of years being really bad at duck hunting before I managed to at least, you know, put one bird on the strap most days. And um, I'm currently learning the woodcock and upland game with cheese right now. So all the more reason to get out there. And Alex, you were telling me, so I want to, we love a good story on the podcast. And I would love for you to share the story of your first year was on an SAP property. It was. Walk yeah. me through that. Um, so I didn't grow up in a hunting family. Okay. Um, I grew up in a family that appreciated guns in a sporting aspect, you yeah. know, more competitive shooting kind of hobbyist. Um, I got more into building them as an excitement. And for me, shooting is a byproduct um, of my excitement of building. Um, but Mark, um, you know, and through Mark and the guys at work that are all very into it, I, you know, heard all their stories and, and I was like, well, I'd like to give it a try. I'm really into it, particularly from a culinary aspect. Yeah. Um, and so I, I didn't know a lot. So I started asking all the guys at work, you know, okay, how, how do you do this? How do you do that? How would you approach this? And, um, Mark actually offered, um, to go in with me for some SAP drawings. So okay. we usually go in together, um, and, and try to draw, you know, lots throughout the year. Um, and it took me a while to learn cause I was trying to learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, I was trying to learn shooting from the ground, um, you know, no stands, oh, no yeah, old lines, school. you know, I was trying to learn the hardest way possible at first. So that way, you know, from there, everything else becomes fundamental. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so after about, uh, so the first year I struck out, but I learned a lot of lessons. I learned a lot of lessons. I had a couple times where I, you know, um, I could have gotten a deer, but because of my lack of confidence of absolutely have a downing shot in that moment, right. uh, I decided to wait. Um, and then by the second year, um, I got a better opportunity. Um, and so I, I finally got there and with my confidence in, in shooting, I, I strangely enough, got it actually at a, a bit of a distance on that safety property. Okay. Um, so, which one of our properties was it? Uh, Smith branch, Smith branch. Got it. Yep. So I was out on the power line on Smith branch and, uh, and got a fairly long shot out there on a doe, um, and was very excited about it. Nice. So, uh, I've been, you know, very excited to move forward from there to, to learn and, and continue. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely going to put in for some more drawings next year. Um, and probably next year I'll, I'll end up going along and trying to learn Turkey. Yeah. That's a tough game. They, they are smart. So off that deer, just cause we're inter- we both share this interest. What was your favorite dish you made? I like the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I took a, a baguette and toasted it with olive oil and slim, thin crisps. Um, I made a cream cheese sauce with fresh parsley, thyme, rosemary, um, black pepper, and horseradish. Um, that I sounds really good. Brined the heart overnight after I'd um, you know cut out all the unnecessary bits. Uh huh. And um, did just a, a quick sear, leaving it as you know medium rare. Real, really, it was truly rare. Rare. Yeah. Like sear on the outside as possible, and topped it with more fresh herbs and a little bit of lemon. And oh, golly, and I bet that was good. It was fantastic. I, I should have not asked you to tell me that right this close <laughs> to lunchtime. Yeah, Alex golly. is a great foodie. Yeah, that's that's um that that could go right to a menu in a pretty nice place. It sounds like two or three of those on a baguette, and 
you put it on the right kind of plate and garnish it correctly, you get like 25 bucks for that at the right restaurant. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's a $30 plate you just described. Yeah, it's it's been great cooking with it. Um, you know, it's been an experience learning what works, what doesn't work, um, you know, because it's, it's such a lean meat source. That... Yeah. yeah. My wife didn't grow up in a hunting family. And actually, it's funny you mentioned that because our last week's podcast, if you hadn't listened, go check it out because we talk about like adult. We Something we use around the office a lot is an adult onset hunter. Yeah. And quite a few of us are. I mean, I started as a teenager going bird hunting with my dad a few times a year, but it really wasn't until I was in college I went to Clemson. And we're a land grant university, so right around the school, there's like 17,000 acres uh, that's all open to students for off-roading. There's a few WMAs in there. You can duck hunt, deer hunt, turkey hunt. You can go fishing. Um, that's fantastic. It's really cool. cool. Uh, through the 4-H extension in Clemson, I actually took a class called Hunting Traditions that was, believe it or not, three credit hours and spent an entire semester learning about like the hunting traditions of the state of South Carolina. And actually, so before we started the podcast, I was telling mark about boykin spaniels and kind of that's where i got all that information um was from that class it was probably one of my favorites i ever took during my time there but you know um those adult onset hobbies and kind of starting things later in life it's always really cool to see you know to hear those stories and to see how it connects to our sap program and giving people those opportunities public access is kind of one of the big i'd say that's probably the closest to home for me Mm because as an adult onset hunter and trying to do it in places where, you know, my family has some land, but it's three hours away. And so I usually look to public lands and look to places that are accessible to the public. And yeah, barriers to entry for, for new hunters. One of the big one is land access. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I'm not from here originally. I grew up in West Virginia I didn't, and, okay. and growing up there, I had a lot of access to good private land. All right. Their, we could hunt all of our neighbor's properties. It was, you know, it was, it was a great little situation. And when I moved to other places, I lived in Louisiana and Tennessee, and both of those places I didn't really have great access unless I knew somebody that had a farm or something that I could hunt on a little bit. Um, and then when I moved to North Carolina, that was the first time that I really hunted on public land very much. Yeah. Um, and I've really kind of fallen in love with it because, it, you know, it makes me feel good that I can hunt in places that other people would be perfectly allowed to go and I can kill deer or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of like I'm being sneaky, like it's right under their nose. Right. I couldn't Anybody could have done this, but I did it. There is something about, I don't know, that's like the sense of accomplishment. I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't want to say greater, but it's, there's, in the fulfillment aspect, there's definitely something to doing it on public land yeah. versus doing it on private land that just kind of, it elevates the accomplishment a little bit, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I like the whole feel of it. Um, you know, last year I had a pretty good year. I, I killed a you know pretty nice buck and a, and a nice doe on, on public land, and I killed a, uh, a, a pretty good-sized pig on public land, too, that I really had a good time with. Fantastic. And paddled that sucker out on a kayak. That was a Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that was an interesting interesting paddle there's uh actually so i don't know if you guys and alex should probably find this particularly interesting does the name jeffy jesse griffiths ring a bell do you know mm-hmm. he's yeah. a chef out of yeah, austin he, texas yeah he's on the uh, hog on, book on meat yeah. eater a lot yeah yep. yeah, I was yeah trying so to buy his book yeah. yeah he's got that book on uh, on wild pig uh-huh. um yeah i really like hearing his stuff i've got the one he did before that a field and it is amazing i mean i go to that book more like for instance, when I owned the food truck, one of the things we did was we did a beer pairing dinner with a brewery in Winston-Salem where it was like a $60 ticket and you got, I think it was five courses and like six pours yeah. through the night. And three of those recipes came out of his book, A Field. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. Yeah. He was my introduction to Neil Guy. Okay. Yeah. Um, which was, uh, I, I didn't had a chance to hunt one I'd like to, but, um, I got to try some of the meat when we were at the NRA convention last year in Texas. 
and he's got some really interesting techniques in there. Yeah, he's it's it's it, I always love seeing like wild game kind of on elevated plates, like put in dishes yeah. that you wouldn't normally see doing things that aren't just, Hey, you know, if you wrap it up in bacon and throw some yeah. cream cheese and jalapeno on there, I'm like, look, I know, but I, that's too much camouflage. If yeah. I want to eat bacon and cream cheese, I can just eat bacon and cream yeah. cheese. It's oh, like, there yep. it went. Losing the microphone. Yeah. yeah there, there's so much opportunity for, you know, a, a good chef, a good cook to really have some adventure with, you know, um, Know, different sources from wild game. The gunsmithing program at Montgomery Community College is one of only a handful of schools in the United States focusing on this discipline. The curriculum is designed to prepare students for existing jobs within the firearms industry, with training ranging from basic diagnostics and repair to true custom builds. Courses are available for every interest and level of commitment, from a three-day class to the full two-year degree program. Gunsmithing is considered one of MCC's Heritage Crafts programs. Other specialty programs include taxidermy, hunting and shooting sports management, forest management technology, and pottery. Visit montgomery.edu to see course descriptions and explore the exciting world of gunsmithing for yourself. All right, we're back. Excuse the technical difficulties there. We're back wired in. So yeah, anyway, we're talking about uh, cooking wild game, which I was really liking where they're going. And you mentioned somebody, Danielle Pruitt. Yeah, Danielle Pruitt. She works with Meat Eater also, uh, okay. along with Jeffy, Jesse Griffiths. Um, but yeah, she's got her. I think her website's called Wild and Whole. Um, she's got a lot of neat recipes. Um, Alex was talking about doing a deer heart. She's got a, a great deer heart recipe that's just uh, seared in butter and whiskey sauce. And uh, I did that one some last year, and it was really great back again man you guys are troopers i appreciate y'all being good sports with our technical difficulties there so we're talking about wild game recipes uh danielle pruitt and her deer heart recipe it gave me a thought so let's go around what's the would you say the most unconventional dish part of an animal you know like that if you said yeah yeah i eat this a lot and it's good your friends might be like mm, really heart's a big one yeah um yeah. I didn't save hearts until pretty recently. Okay. Um, the last couple of years, I started saving the hearts. Of course, liver always gets some upturned noses. For sure. Um, you know, especially deer liver. You know, I yeah. always have to. My brother's a wildlife biologist, so I have to. Now he's told me about liver flukes, so I have to check him for liver flukes yeah. before I can eat them. Um, but yeah, there's there's some pretty interesting stuff. You know, uh, natural hog casing sausages would be an interesting. Yeah. Thing to actually, that would be cool. You know, do your own own casings. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty adventurous eater, and, and Alex is super foodie, so he he would definitely be ad adventurous on that sort of thing. Yeah. What's well, the most out there thing you've dish you've created? Uh, that I've created, it's mainly just organ meats. Yeah. You know, nothing that is too wild for most people, but you know, some people it's kind of shocking too. Um, you know, weirdest thing I've eaten would probably be uh, octopus brain. Okay. Um, I got offered pickled octopus brain one time. Um, but I don't uh, feel like I'd be able to turn that down. It was really good. Yeah? It was oddly good. Um, but, yeah, I've made friends with the sushi chef, and he's like, hey, you want to try something? <laughs> That's The answer to that is always yes. Yeah. Like, I don't even need <laughs> to know what it is. Uh, but, yeah, I'd, I'd like to experiment more because I, I haven't had a chance to do too much with game meat just because, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to use my own. Uh -huh. um, but I, I'd like to – I really like to experiment with some odd things. Like um, The thing – so I hunt birds, and, like, there's not a lot of opportunities to save hearts and things like that. So it's mostly just breast cuts, leg cuts. Mm -hmm. I'd say my favorite thing that I've done with it – and this is, you know, I've got my wife and two girls – 
and working in wild game meats. I don't I want to say it's a challenge, but just like mm-hmm. it, you, we have to get a little bit unconventional, mix some flavors in. We did a dumpling night yeah, with a huge batch of quail. I've got a grinder, so I ran them through a grinder, made a mix. We sat there and mm-hmm. filled the dumplings. That was like hands down. I mean, my daughters devoured them, loved sitting there and making them. My wife devoured them. I was like, okay, noted. That's awesome. I have to start checking. Now, I'm kind of wondering, like, now I'm starting to think, okay, what else could I place into that medium? You know, I'm sure venison would work really well. Mm-hmm. Probably wild turkey. I've heard really good things. I've never tried wild turkey. What's that like? All right. Well, it's a little bit darker than a yeah. tame turkey. Um, so what a lot of people do is is just cut the breast off because right. the, the thighs and the legs are a lot darker than what they're used to if you buy a butterball. Yeah. Um, so, like, last year I got a, got a really nice turkey on one of the SAP properties. And uh, so I... I did a just traditional brine and grill with with the breast, but what I did with the uh, with the leg and the thigh, the the, the back portion of it, um, I made that into soup, um, and it was fantastic. I, I smoked it first, yeah, and then cut it off the bone and, and boiled it up for soup. That um, so awesome. it had a little bit of that smoky flavor to it. So I did just a turkey and rice soup that was Man, really good. That does sound good. Thinking along the lines that you're saying with grinding the dove breast, um, I'd be really interested to try to do like Thai pot stickers with that. Yeah. That, that'd be, you know, right along the lines, you know, just add a little bit of cilantro, a little bit of lime, and, and a couple of the traditional seasonings, and yeah. you're off to the races. Yeah, that'd be amazing. And a more southern twist, another good one for, for any of that kind of thing is uh, pot pie. Yeah. I yeah. like doing a pot pie with, you know, with, with any of that sort of meat. Yep. I did a rabbit pot pie, not this past season, but two seasons ago, I got invited on a rabbit hunt and got a limit. It was a great day. Came home. I had forgotten... And I've told anybody to listen since that day how much I enjoy rabbit. I'm like, that oh, is yeah. the tastiest critter. <laughs> yeah, rabbits are fantastic. In the woods. Right. The whole thing is a chicken thigh. The yeah. entire animal is, I mean, it just was wild to me. I was blown away. Um, something, there was one other thing I wanted to mention. It was, uh, oh, back to Jeffy, Jesse Gerritz with a dove. Uh, I always get crazy looks for this at dove hunts because people typically just pop the breast out. Yeah. Go do their thing. Pluck them. Actually, sit down and take the time to leave the skin on. Yeah, Yeah, leave the skin on. You cut the backbone out and kind of spatchcock them. Yeah. And they're fantastic over coals on the grill like that. The other thing he does is he'll make a hot fried. So, same deal, but not spatchcock, just cut in half. So, Mm -hmm. you effectively have like, they look like little mini chicken quarters. Yeah. And he'll just make like a Nashville hot chicken with like a hot honey on there. And Mm -hmm. golly, I tried that that recipe this past year. It was amazing. It's a lot of work to set up a fryer. That's one of those things that like, you, you you go to a restaurant. It's like, man, how is an order of fries five bucks? And okay, well, go home and set up a deep fry pot on your stove and double fry that batch of fries. And tell me if you think it's not. You're going to think it's worth more than five dollars if you do <laughs> oh, all yeah. the work required <laughs> to make that happen. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot out there. So with that, were you dry brining it or uh, with the spatchcock? You dry brine it or so, wet brining? Just straight up season salt and like coat it in a little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper for the coals. Yeah. On the fried one, you actually mix like a bottle of Texas peat, any vinegar, hot sauce, crystal, mm-hmm. Tabasco. Tabasco is gonna be a lot spicier, but a lot of those red, you know, Frank's red hot. Um, mix that in buttermilk. Okay. And you brine it just like you would a piece of fried chicken, let it sit in there for a couple hours and then take it out. And this is actually a little side note. So when I was on the food truck, when I owned a food truck, the first employee I hired watched me frying chicken and was like, man, you want me to teach you how they do that at KFC? I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I mean, I used to work at KFC and I can teach you how to do the extra crispy breading. And uh, any of the Colonel Sanders family, if y'all are happening to listen to this podcast, you can send the cease and desist letter (laughs) to 204 
in his street in downtown Sarsbury, but I doubt this is going to make it to any of y'all. Um, and it's really simple. You take whatever you're breading, you go dry into your breading mixture, dip it in water, go right back into the breader. No buttermilk, no nothing. Really? Huh. Yep. They're not brining it. They're just taking chicken breader, water breader, right into the oil. And something about that, what the way it was explained to me, and I understand this is kind of what happens when you batter or bread a lot of things you're really steaming like mm-hmm. the outside is getting fried but really what's happening inside is it's getting steamed so that dip in the water and then back into the breader creates little pockets of moisture inside the breader in between the chicken and the outer layer of the breader that when that heats up it evaporates in there and it leaves a gap and that's where you get the crunch that's, really, yeah. that's where the crunch is coming i'd heard from. somewhere that the um one of the secrets that from colonel sanders original stuff was that he did his frying in a pressure cooker yep we were, uh, so on April 1st, we were up at the Uari El Dorado Outpost, El Dorado Outpost, excuse me, uh, trying to sell some raffle tickets. And I made the comment to Mike, our new director of development, that, you know, he should get some fried chicken. I had some there yesterday. is really good. And he was like, really? I was like, dude, as soon as I saw the pressure cooker, I didn't even see the chicken. There was no chicken up when I first walked in there. I looked over and saw that pressure cooker and saw steam coming out of it. I was like, I want it. Whatever's in there, <laughs> I know that kind of seasoned look on commercial cookware. That thing's been there for a while, and whoever's been doing it has been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And I want the chicken that's about to come out of that thing. And I stood right there and waited. Oh, yeah. Best two thighs I've had in a long time. That's great. It, well, with being there, you got to swing by and visit us. We're only 10 minutes from there. I'll have to next time. I yeah. don't, I'm absolutely. Yeah, you're welcome anytime to come down. You can. We'll give you a tour of the the gunsmithing program. Oh, we'll take, I love that. Take you down to taxidermy. I'd I'd be absolutely remiss if I didn't also put in a plug for a taxidermy. I was program really disappointed when I found out she wasn't coming because I was. Yeah. I have a cheese's first woodcock from January. Mm-hmm. I euro mounted the skull. Well, and and Jordan McDuffie, that's the taxidermy instructor down at MCC. She kind of specializes in birds, so that's really? Uh, mm-hmm. that's really her thing. So yeah, you'd you'd be really. You did miss out on, on, yeah. on her. But we'll yeah, have we, to schedule another podcast and bring her back. But yeah, it's such an unusual school um, in that, you know, we've got gunsmithing and knife making and yeah. we have taxidermy down the hall and we also have a, a forestry program. So it's sort of an outdoorsman's, you know, sort of area. There. That sounds we have a fantastic. Lot of, it's it's a neat environment for, for somebody that likes the outdoors. Yeah, I read an article, I was actually reading an article recently about the resurgence of community colleges in America mm-hmm. in general, and that they're over the past few years becoming a lot more popular and people kind of re- realizing the resource that's right there right. at your fingertips. Well, there's a lot of good reasons for that, you know, without getting too far in the weeds on it, yeah. but the cost of a traditional university is so incredibly high. Yep. And, you know, people that are my age, I'm, I'm 45, and people that are my age and younger, we, you know, a lot of us were told get a degree, any degree will do, it doesn't matter. So a lot of people got liberal arts degrees that mm-hmm. cost them a tremendous amount of money, and they're not really able to earn that money back over their lifetime. Right. Um, so a lot of people are starting to see the utility of, of trades and, and what community colleges have to offer. You know, I just, it's sort of a soapbox issue for me because I work at a community college, but, um, and, you know, I listen to Mike Rowe a lot, the dirty jobs guy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, it, it's so interesting that people my parents' age they all knew trades. They knew how to weld. They knew how to do things. They were machinists. Right. Um, people my age didn't want to do those things because we were told it was beneath us. Right. Um, so now we're starting to see that those skills are valuable and they're worth a lot of money now. So a lot of people are making a very good living doing trades. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's seeing a real 
kickback and a real it's kind of a reversal of what we've been doing for a long time but it's fascinating to watch the psychology around all that change because i was you know what you just mentioned i was raised and kind of like go get a degree go to college go find a company work for the company for 30 years take your retirement package go do your, you know live your life do your thing that's mm-hmm. the model and um when i so i was laid off from aig in Summer 2016, I believe that was, May 17. It was uh, May of 17 because I remember coming home and kind of trying to figure out what do I want to do. It's got to be something I've got passion for because I spent eight years in various you know sales and development roles kind of in the corporate America space, and I did not like it. And I knew I loved to cook. I wanted to go open a food truck. I'd like to take a break right now to issue a warning to Alex. I know that you love to cook. If you ever get the bright idea that you might open a food truck, please come see me and give me the opportunity to talk you out of that because it was the most humbling experience I've ever been through in my life. And I mean that wholeheartedly, but I learned a lot about myself. I think my personal growth and professional growth, you know, I experienced more in those three years than I ever did in eight years of the various companies I worked at. And one of the things I learned the most about myself is how much happier I am in a hands-on situation, not sitting at a desk all day, every day, being able to create something and share that with someone, you know, that's kind of, it's exceptionally rewarding. It is. It's very rewarding. It can also be the hardest part of it. It's like the, what's the argument around, what what do they call this? The autonomy of art, right? When you create and then you share the thing you created, all of a sudden it's not yours anymore. It's not up to you to say what it is, if it's good, if it's bad. You have given it to the public, and now they get to decide. And that can be... It can be heartbreaking too. The scariest part, yeah. Because you're putting your baby out there and for people to, to you know, to criticize. Or, oh, yeah. You know, so that's, I told that's a tough. coworker recently, it was like, you will put your, I, I can't tell you how many times I put my heart and soul into a dish, spend 12 hours prepping, getting everything together. Within 10 minutes of opening that window and going live, somebody's going to come up to me and go, hey, this sucks. <laughs> You know, and I'm gonna be like, it, it is so hard not to take that personally and just start screaming out the window. And you know, you can't yep. do that because then you end up on social media or YouTube or something. Yeah, you really have to grow some it. alligator skin. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really hard because sometimes you'll get those ideas for a new concept for a recipe or or you know whatever you're building, and you, you really push for it, and in your head you have this idea, and just it doesn't quite pan out to be that. Right. Yeah. But that that happens in every career, though. You it know, does. In teaching, it's like that. You know, you 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 work really hard on something, and you you really think you've gotten a good class or a good product or a good lesson, and then then you you know a student that doesn't appreciate that particular thing right. has you know has a complaint about it. And, oh, and it really mm-hmm. you know it hurts your feelings because yeah. you really put your your time and your effort into that. So, you know, it it happens in everything. But if you really put your passion into something, you, you're opening yourself up to get hurt. That's, yeah. And it's yeah. worth it. The, yeah, the risk absolutely. has been worth it every time I've taken it in my life, even yeah. when it hasn't gone well. Um, really, what's the, uh, I don't know if you got, there's a song that I love by a band called the Drive-By Truckers. It's yep. about a guy who drew up uh, Daddy's Cup, if yeah. you ever heard that one. Yeah, I like Drive-By Truckers. My favorite line out of that song is his dad, you know, he's, he's telling his dad, like, I, I don't think I can do this. His first race came in last or something. And his dad says, hey, knowing that it's in you, can you never let it out? And I look at that and I think, you know, I've got a four-year-old and two-year-old. That's probably what I'll tell my daughters one day when they ask, should I go do this? Should I go try this? I'm like, well, look, you know, it's in you. So the question you have to ask is not, do I think I can do it? Can I live with not knowing? Can I not ever let this out and sit and live with that for the rest of my life? And, you know, that's kind of my food truck three years foray into that. I, you know. I let it out. I, I yep. have my answer now. I signed a restaurant lease in downtown Winston on March 9th of 2020. Yeah. 
So that worked out like really well. Could not have been timed better. <laughs> um, thankfully, the landlord was a friend of mine and he was real cool about it and, you know, didn't end up sinking me financially or anything like that. But man, I always, I love to tell people that. I'm like, yeah, I signed a restaurant lease on March 9th, 2020. How was your pandemic? <laughs> <That's brutal. laughs> yeah, I feel quite familiar with that story because, you know, like you, I worked a bunch of sales jobs, yep. corporate jobs. And then in my, my mid-20s, I was like, you know, I, I want to do something more rewarding. And, yeah. And that's how I got into gunsmithing. That's awesome. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming out today. Um, again, this has been Mark Dye, Alex Williams with Montgomery Community College. You guys go check them out at www.montgomery.edu. They got a full listing of their short-term gunsmithing classes, of everything they offer. Um, Knife making should be up in two weeks. Fantastic. So, yeah, go check them out. And, again, we end every podcast this way. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any suggestions for guests, subject matter, stuff you want to see, you want to come on yourself, you got something you want to talk to, reach out or talk about, excuse me, reach out, will, at trlt.org, and we will see you next time. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for Appreciate it. If you like the show and would like the episodes to keep coming, You should know that our podcast is just one of the tools that we use at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose is to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife and to ensure wildlife populations have habitat forever here in North Carolina. This podcast is just a byproduct to further that mission. You can visit our website at trlt.org to join us in this conservation mission.